Amen. Please be seated. It's true, I've waited my whole ministry life to say this to you. Turn to Ephesians 2. We've just left one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, only to go to one that might be better. I know it's scary to say that, but everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but I know a lot of people have particular verses that have um, impacted them differently over the years, more powerfully some than others, or just for some reason the Lord brings into focus some truth of Scripture that you never forget where you were when you heard it. And Ephesians 2 is such a chapter for me. It marked a change in my... uh, I was a Christian already, but um, somewhat depressed about general life, discouraged about what I saw in myself, what I saw in mankind. I believed in Jesus as my Savior, but did not understand. Did not understand grace. Did not understand... I thought grace meant you choose Jesus, become a Christian, and then you work really hard at pleasing him. That's not grace. That's, that's, that's not even Christian. But I thought that was the sum total of the Christian life, and then seeing the world around and just the way things are would be enough to depress anybody. Preach this message and people won't come, and things, people do bad things, but everybody keeps saying how good everybody is. It just made no sense. And I remember hearing a clear exposition of Ephesians 2, and it really forever changed my life as a person, my view of the world, of people, and in ministry as well. So I give you that as an introduction, knowing that even that introduction will come woefully short of opening up appreciation for what these verses say. I know it's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual eyes to see the depths of what is contained. Really in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, there's just no way I could do all 10 verses in one sermon. So we'll look at the first seven and then uh, pick up the last portion of this section, 1 through 10, next week, Lord willing. So please hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we have just read and heard some of the greatest words in the whole of your sacred word because of the richness of your mercy, because of the great love with which you have loved us, because you have made us alive together with Christ, we come to you with our worship, our devotion, and our desire to obey you. Please give us spiritual eyes to see what is before us in this section of Ephesians. And give us, 
a holy motivation to praise you with our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It has been rightly noted over the years by many pastors and teachers that Ephesians is like Paul's manifesto about God's new creation. And I don't mean just us as individual new creations in Christ, new creatures in Christ as we are, but his new creation or his new community, the church. Uh, The emphasis of Ephesians is to ground every believer in a depth of knowledge about the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of our Savior with the purpose of shoring up the church as a whole to see ourselves as God's called out ones, to see ourselves as so integral to the work that God's doing on this earth for redemption, to redeem sinners to himself. We are Christ's body, as we have seen, and Christ's body is active on earth to call people to Jesus. Because fundamentally, despite all the divisions we make and are accented in humanity, the real division is between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Those who are in God's church, called out ones, recipients of the grace of God through Christ, and those who are not. And so this message is meant to build up the church as Christ's new community that will have its impact, that will do his work, that will carry out his mission, all empowered by the same grace that saved us. And so Ephesians 2, it doesn't step back from Ephesians 1, but it now focuses, dials in on the character of God as it relates to the great salvation we have. We learn of the nature of mankind, the true nature of mankind. And we learn the nature and characteristics of God. And we see the reasons he does all this, the reasons he saves us. I mean, there's probably more than we can imagine. I can never capture it all, but we get a glimpse of it here in Ephesians chapter 2. You will notice that it starts out on the strong negative and it moves to the really incredible positive. I will not be able to express to you, to my regret, with the right kind of skill that really should be given to this passage. How bad our situation is in Christ. I cannot describe it. I trust fully the Holy Spirit will help us capture what the passage says because there's no help I can give. This passage describes our situation apart from Christ could not be worse. It could not. It's that bad. As bad as you think our situation is outside of Christ, I promise you're too optimistic. But we also see in this passage, it's been set up in Ephesians 1, our situation in union with Christ could not be better. Nothing could be better. John Stott captures this relationship in the opening verses by saying, Paul plums the depths of pessimism about man, and then he rises to the heights of optimism about God. Notice what he says. The pessimism is wrapped up in the condition of man, but our optimism is wrapped up in the character and actions of God. We have this in full display in 1 through 7, really 1 through 10, but we'll stop at 7 today. Well, how bad is it? How bad is it? It's really bad. We're dead apart from Christ. Our spiritual condition before Christ or outside of Christ is spelled out in no uncertain terms. Look at verse 1. And you were dead. Now, I teach how to do Bible studies in the chapter class that I do or the leadership class, and you've probably done Bible studies, and there are Bible studies that require lots of research and work to discover the meaning of the words. 
The meaning of the word here is dead. It comes from nekros, the Greek word for dead body. The Greek could literally be translated, and you were dead ones. You were dead ones. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, this is the condition of mankind apart from Christ. In Genesis chapter 2, when man was created, the first person, the first human being, Adam, the head of the race, as we say, the Lord God took the man, Genesis 2, and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely get sick. Now, I say it that way because you know that's not what it says, and it's shocking to hear me say it that way. Yet most people, if you ask them, they don't think man's dead. Even Christians will talk in terms he's sick, he's impaired. A long line of theologians would say it that way. Well, we're really harmed at the fall. We're really injured at the fall. We're messed up. We're sick because of the fall. But there's still something in us that can reach out for some cure that God might offer. But that's not what the Bible says. He said to Adam, you will surely die, is what he said. Our confession of faith does a great job capturing this original sin and what it means for our condition. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Upon disobeying God, Adam died spiritually immediately and his physical body followed suit. By spiritually dead, it means the total inability to know God and how to rightly please him. We are not spiritually maimed apart from Christ. We are not spiritually ill apart from Christ. We are not spiritually impaired or sick. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are blind to the glory of Christ. We are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We have no love for God apart from Christ. We have no awareness of his personal reality. We may know that there is a God because that's rational. Someone made all this that we see. But we don't have any desire to to know that God personally. We have no awareness of his personal reality apart from Christ. Spiritually dead means we are lifeless spiritually. We're cold. We are departed, if you will. We are expired, gone, perished, inert, unanimated. Nothing in us spiritually. Zero. Life without God is a living death. The fall rendered such violence to mankind as cannot be fully appreciated or described. The fruit of that spiritual deadness that is ours apart from Christ is on full display in how we live and how we act. You see it through the, through the whole of humankind. Now, remind, be, be reminded, Paul is talking to a specific audience. He's talking to a people who are relatively new believers out of paganism. But he's clearly meaning this to be an application to all of mankind, that it's true for anybody who's called to Christ, is called out from this. Now, luckily, many people have gone far down the road of all the things lived out here in actuality, but it's in all of us through Adam and his sin. So he's not just speaking of a particular people. He's talking about all humankind have this condition of sin. The biblical diagnosis of fallen man in a fallen society everywhere is here given for us. 
It's given a description of everybody, every human being, through the lens of the Ephesians, this local group of individuals who became believers. Many of them became believers. Paul is describing in Ephesians 2 the universal human condition apart from Christ. This is so critical for understanding the world around us and people in general, to know from whence we've come, to know what people are entrapped by apart from Christ. It says in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, there's three descriptions of our human condition apart from Christ, our predicament. In verse 1, we're dead. The spiritual deadness also means something else. We're enslaved, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. See, we're enslaved to following the world in this system fundamentally opposed to God. We're enslaved to following the devil and his lies right from the beginning in the garden and even done through to, to now. We're enslaved by our flesh carrying out the desires that we have. So our deadness also means we're enslaved to these things. But it's not just that. In verse 3, you'll notice we're condemned also. We carry out our passions and our flesh, the first part of verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. This doesn't mean angry children. It's true in sin. We are raging people. We can be angry. But this means we're children under the wrath of God, rightly, justly under the wrath of God because of our sin. So it's as bad as it can be, brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, dead, enslaved, and condemned. All of these things. And it's wrapped up in our enslavement to the, to our, to the world, to the devil, to our flesh. And it's manifested in these things, our trespasses and our sins. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Trespasses and sins. Very particular, precise, intentional use of words here to describe iniquities, wrongdoings are affronts against God. But Paul uses two words, and I think for good purpose, to capture it all so that nothing could be left out. Trespasses and sins. What is it to trespass? To go over a boundary you were told not to go over. To go where you shouldn't go. What does it mean to sin? It means you've missed the mark. You haven't reached to the, to the standard that's supposed to be met. So by trespasses, it's all the sins we're committing. By sins here, I think it means to say the sins that are committed because we're not doing what we should do. Because someone might say, but I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not all these things, which wouldn't be true, but they might think it. But there are plenty of sins of omission where God calls you to do something and you don't do it. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following or enslaved to the course of this world, following the, the mass hordes of zombies, as it were. And I use that term very carefully. I realize not everybody is into zombie movies and such, but The Walking Dead had a few good seasons before it kind of tanked. You know, you can only go so far with the theme of zombies. But it's very vivid and telling, and it's picturesque for us. The premise of the movie is that a virus hits mankind, and it kills the person in body. But the virus lives through the brainstem and makes the body look animated. It's walking around. They're in hordes, and they're looking for the next thing to feast on, and they move around massive groups. They look alive, but they're dead. So the world may look alive, but it's dead. Just doesn't know it. They're zombies. That's what zomb- zombies don't know. They just, they're not in control of their faculties, as you might think, because they're dead. Our walk apart from Christ 
is not a leisurely, pleasurable stroll in which we once walked as our trespasses and sins. It's a fearful bondage. The world is the system of earth opposed to God, and this is what we were enslaved to and ultimately under the right condemnation of God, children of wrath. And, and, who are, and again, to the division of mankind, what's the division? Those who are in Christ, those who are not, those who are no longer under God's wrath, those who are still children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what it says in verse 3. You're under God's wrath or you're not, and the only way you're not is through Christ. And that's what he's celebrating with the Ephesians. And we celebrate as we consider we're no longer under the wrath of God because of Christ. But before Christ set us free, we were subject to oppressive influences from both within and without. By nature, human nature, children of wrath. Children are not born in it. They're not conceived innocent. Conceived in iniquity. That's the result of the fall. It's pervasive. No one avoids it. No one's born innocent. All of us suffer from this human condition. Death, slavery, condemnation. This is what describes our condition. These concepts that Paul brings together to describe lost humanity. Some call it total depravity or total inability. No part of our humanity, no part of our being is unaffected by the fall. Our minds, our emotions, our conscience, our will, however you want to slice people up, it's all tainted by sin. Our situation apart from Christ absolutely could not be worse. Before we are united to Christ, you know that we can't do anything to please God. In fact, everything we do apart from Christ actually condemns us further. And if we're really honest, the bad in our life way outweighs the good, even the most holy looking among you. If you're really honest, if you only commit a couple sins a day, I promise it's way more than that. Think of the things you, don't think too hard, but the things that come to your mind that you know are sinful or the inclinations you struggle against. As a Christian even, you struggle against them. If you add them up, two, three, five, ten, fifty a day, and, and times it by 365, and times it by many, how many years you've been alive, it's not a little amount. And I don't care how much good you did. It's not going to outweigh all of that. But if you're in Christ, it's the righteousness of Christ that's credited to you. That's why we have this confidence. But if you are not, it could not be worse for you. It could not be worse. Our anthropology, our understanding of man in his condition, humankind in his condition, has to be informed by God giving us this revelation because we're too impaired by our own senses to detect what it really is. But even an honest unbeliever has got to say it don't look so good. I mean, you don't have to look very far today to see it don't look so good. Our anthropology must be informed by God's Word, not our feelings about things, and certainly not by the descriptions of those who are spiritually blind. You know, recently I was paying attention, I've been paying attention to the news cycle like everybody, and it's just, you know, one bad take after another about humankind. I'm not getting so much into the politics of it, because people love to go there, and, and even the arguments, the, the huge, strong social arguments that are going on, that should be had, and people can have them. But what amazes me is the starting point for so many people, even some who say they're Christians, uh, their outlook on mankind is so optimistic. I don't know where they get this. It's not anywhere evident that I can see. In fact, it was interesting, um, while discussing on some news program, the terrible rioting and looting that was associated with the murder of George Floyd. 
along with the problem, the problem of racism in our country, other things were discussed, very sensitive topics, important topics to discuss. The Democratic presidential candidate, Biden, said, you know, about 10 to 15 percent of Americans are just not very good people. Now, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this, I mean, seriously? That is, I, that's, and then, before you can jump on a partisan side, Sarah S- uh, Sanders, daughter of a Baptist minister, cuts him down and says, he's saying things that are divisive, saying 15% of our country aren't good people. Well, Joe and Sarah, you're both wrong. 100% of the people are bad people. That's the problem, you see. There are no 10 to 15% good. If there were that many good, we wouldn't have the problems we have. But none are good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. And if you're, you have an optimistic view of mankind, you will be sorely disappointed and start with yourself. This is the truth about man's condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul reminds the Ephesians and reminds us, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now maybe you're saying, I've been growing up in the church and I've never done all those things. Now, you may not have personally, but in Adam, all of us are guilty of this sin. And as a people, God's called the church out. And let me say, don't get smug about this, young people especially in Christ. The, the thing that you should be driven towards is, God, thank you that I didn't follow through on all those things that were true of my condition apart from Christ. And be reminded of the gospel. Be sure your rest is in Christ, not in you grew up in the church or that you're better than your friend in high school. That, that can't be your standard. It has to be, I am a sinner in need of Christ. If you believe that, then you're alive in Christ. That's the evidence of it, and we'll see that. But there are only two people. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. And spiritual deadness is our condition before. Recognize this as you interpret the world. I'm not saying don't get active and involved in trying to change things that are wrong. I, I appreciate that. But the Christian does have to have a perspective about what has to happen if we're going to see actual full-scale societal change. And it comes from the message God's given the church. And it's not just a message you preach and don't do anything with. I'm not saying that at all. It's going to change the way we act, for sure. But it must start there. You know, this is not an unusual era. We think it is, but it's not. I've been studying several different eras that, frankly, were worse. Go look up 1919 and look at everything that happened in 1919. This ain't nothing. And then, even in my short life, In 1979, I remember growing up under a certain weird fear about the Russians bombing us. Sorry if you're Russian, but we were scared of you at one time. I remember uh, literally having bomb drills. I lived near Niagara Falls, New York, and so we had a Nike missile base a mile or two from our house. In fact, years later, we'd ride our bikes in the old missile silo that was into the ground where the missiles used to be, all to fire off um, over the... I guess they'd shoot them over the the different, uh, over the top of the earth to go, go bomb Russia back. And so we're thinking uh, there's going to be a, a massive world war at some point. And I, I just thought this way. We'd have air raid drills every so often. We'd go out in the hall. I mean, like, that's going to protect you from a nuke. But anyways, we would do this. And so this was kind of the, in the, in the late 1970s, this is how it was. And then I remember a huge oil crisis where we were driving to Canada to get oil because it was too expensive in the States. I mean, you spend a quarter of a tank of gas to go buy gas because we couldn't afford it otherwise. Massive layoffs people had. There was racial unrest then too in many, in, in many ways. Uh, many uh, different class struggles I remember happening in western New York and then other places in the world. Uh, the Cold War is going on. Uh, it just was a weird time to live as a young person and it felt 
insecure. And how is man going to write this thing? Because you'd hear people talking about how if we just get our heads together, we'll get this right. We'll get this. John Stott, in 1979, wrote the, uh, the commentary on Ephesians that I refer to often when I'm preaching. Listen to what Stott said. And keep in mind, there's no internet in 1979. And there is, uh, at this time, a similar situation that we find. But just listen to what he says, and you'll know how this is transcendent or it's timeless. Stott wrote, I sometimes wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. Of course, every age is bound to have blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. And every generation breeds new prophets of doom. Nevertheless, the media enable us to grasp the worldwide extent of contemporary evil. And it is this which makes the modern scene look so dark. It is partly the escalating economic problem, population growth, spoliation of natural resources, inflation, unemployment, hunger, partly the spread of social conflict, racism, tribalism, the class struggle, disintegrating family life, and partly the absence of an accepted moral guideline leading to violence, dishonesty, and sexual promiscuity pretty much lays it all out. But this is what he says. It captures it in a timeless way, seen through the lens of Scripture. Listen close. Stott said, Man seems incapable of managing his own affairs or of creating a just, free, humane, and tranquil society. For man himself is askew. Man himself is askew. Stott's capturing the biblical anthropology helps us understand the dilemma we face as a, as a race, the human race. Genesis 6, 5 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah seventeen nine. the heart, you know, they say follow your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Like, pick something. The heart's more deceitful than that. And desperately sick, who can understand it? Romans three twenty three. all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Our situation, apart from Christ, would you not agree? It could not be worse, and I'm not doing nearly a good enough job of hammering this point home. And I don't have another service after this, so I can keep hammering it home. We've got time. But then, the two greatest words in the Bible, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with him, with Christ. By grace you have been saved, but God. You were dead, but God. You were a spiritual zombie, but God. You were swallowed up by your trespasses and sins, but God. You were walking in Satan's step. You were his slave under his command, but God. You were one of the walking dead, but God. You were destined to devour yourself and others with your passions and your lusts, but God. You were raging against God, which could only end in your destruction, but God, who is rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead, He made us alive together with Christ. He regenerated us. He resurrected us. He gave us life where there was none. By grace, you have been saved. Our situation apart from Christ, beloved, could not be worse. But our situation in union with Christ could not be better. Dead men don't rise. God has taken action to reverse our condition. And he's done so in and with Christ. We are alive in Christ. We've seen something of the nature of man in these opening verses. Now, in our salvation, we see something of the character of God. In our regeneration, another great word to describe what we have gained as a benefit, regeneration, to breathe life into something that was dead. We're regenerated. We were dead, but now regenerated forth to life. We see something of the nature of God, and I want you to see how it unfolds in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. So the first revelation about God is he is merciful. Um, He acts based on his mercy, and his mercy means that he's withholding something we absolutely deserve and we know it. We should get it, but we don't get it because he's merciful. He's rich in mercy, so he acts out of his mercy toward us. But it says also in verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, the further understanding of this is his love for us is based in our union with Christ. His love for his son, who he has placed us in, makes us lovable because of Christ for us. Christ in our stead, in our place. So he loves us, and it's not an emotionalism that's fickle. It's a commitment based on something that he has set himself to. He has set his love upon us. He has foreknown us in this way. It's a commitment that cannot be broken. It will never be broken. He's merciful and he's loving in this way and it's out of that love that he unites us to his son. We are united to his son, which furthers that love. Verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And here's another attribute or characteristic of God. By grace you've been saved. He is gracious. Grace is something even more than mercy. Grace has to do with showing us favor when what we deserve is wrath. Mercy is just not letting you have what you deserve. But it doesn't say anything about being an adopted child. Grace is adopting you as his child, even though you deserve his wrath. And why does he do this? Because of Christ for us. These are the characteristics. This is the nature of God that works to bring us from death to life. We talk about our redemption. We talk about our salvation, our justification, all these words. A term we don't use as much but is important is regeneration. Regeneration. This is the work God does to breathe life into the dead spiritually. We are raised from the dead. And more literally, we are raised from the dead with Christ. We are crucified with Christ when we're placed in him. And then we are raised from the dead, and it doesn't stop there. He then seats us with his son in the heavenly places. Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Alive together with Christ. S-Y-N. That's the word that means together. A synagogue means together, the gathering together. God puts us together with Christ in union with him. John Murray said it well. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Our being right before God is wrapped up in being placed in Christ. You know, we get a little bit of a glimpse 
of the fullness of this in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 164 times in Paul's epistles, he says, in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, by Christ. Union with Christ. This, in this union, it could not get better for us. Verse 7, we get a little glimpse of what is motivating God, if you would use such a term. Why does God do this? I don't know about you, but I've asked many times in my own life and heart, why would God save me, save anyone? So that, verse 7, in the coming ages, from this time forward, he, God, might show the immeasurable, that word again, you can't measure this, he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in a sense, a part of God's motivation is revealed, that which he wants us to know. He wasn't motivated by something about us or in us, but rather by something in himself, his grace, and his love for his son, who we're united to. This feature of God's character might not have been known any other way. Grace, now it's on full display for all eternity. You and I are living evidence of God's graciousness. We are exhibits of God's skill to save, to raise from the dead, to regenerate. We are trophies of his grace. We manifest who God is in his graciousness. The praiseworthy grace of God manifested by our salvation wrought completely and wholly by him. You know, when I look back at my own life in development as a believer, just growing in grace, uh, I remember events or teachings that define the rest of my life. The first happened when I was uh, towards the beginning of my teen years. I only paused because I've preached this twice. I can't remember if I told you or not. But uh, I probably told you this before, but it's worth saying to appreciate how this passage direct, uh, relates I had grown up in the church, or at least a church, and there was um, a reverence for God I definitely had. I was scared of God. I, I did not have a healthy relationship because I knew my sin, and I never could get clearly from anybody how I could be relieved of this burden. It would just be, give me a list of things to do. And this, this could be true of the tradition I grew up. It could be any number of other kinds. It's not Protestant, Catholic, or other. I, I know churches that are Protestant that teach a works-based salvation or self-righteous salvation the same way the Roman church does. But in my case, all the message I got was, you need to do this, this, and this to hopefully be saved. And that, ne- I mean, I was, I was discouraged. I was beat down over this. And I remember going to a backyard Bible club where this little Baptist church was putting on this evangelistic thing the way Baptists do. And I appreciated it because they were clearly saying how you could be right with God. It was a very simple message with multiple clear scriptural passages that say how believing in Christ makes you in Christ and so you could be safe in Jesus and the wrath of God will not be on you any longer. He won't be angry with you any longer if you're in Jesus. Just believe on Christ and his work. And I heard that. And it wasn't so much like a light switch flipped. I think that's true in God's work. You go from life to death. But sometimes it takes time to really comprehend what's happened. It's sort of like when I, like this, you're a little blurry and now you're getting, it's, that's how it was for me. It's like, oh, that's it. I believe what he says. So at that moment, I think I was clear about being born again, clear about the gospel. I'd say I was a Christian at that moment. But some years went by and I would read the Bible on my own and I would always come to this conclusion that, first of all, I kind of did, I did this work, you know, I heard the message, and I finally, I heard it before, but I finally decided to follow Jesus. I decided to choose to believe in him, to, to take this action. And I believe that it is a seed in me, 
And people pretty much reassured that, oh, you prayed to receive Jesus, or you, have you asked the Lord Jesus to be your Savior? Well-meaning people would say to me, yes, I have. I've asked him, but my life still stinks. Like, I'm not doing so well here, and I'm not ob- obedient. I don't really know how to be obedient. Well, but you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And then I went to a church, and they gave you all these rules. That, yes, you're saved by trusting in Jesus, taking Jesus into your heart, whatever that means. And then, then you've got to do this, this, and this. And by the way, don't do this, this, and this. I was thoroughly confused. I went from the Roman Catholic system of do this, this, and this to be saved to the fundamentalist Christian system of do this, 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 and this. The message to me was not the gospel any which way, and I was all beat down over it, although I do believe I trusted in Christ. And here I am trying to figure this out. I wanted other people, though, to know this message. So at the same time I'm wrestling with this, I'm on a rampage telling every one of my pagan friends how they need to be saved. Some were church-going pagan friends, and others were outgoing pagan friends, but the point is, They did not believe in Christ, and they knew me real well. I was close with them. They're going to listen to me. It's so obvious. So I started preaching the message to them for a couple years in high school and pretty much got run out by all of them. They just laughed me. They laughed me away, and it was discouraging and demoralizing. I'm just giving the gospel. How come they're not choosing, and I'm not doing a good enough job? They're going to go to hell if I don't tell them better. So I redouble my efforts to the point where I got so beat down over it. I didn't doubt my own trust in Christ, but I didn't know how it all worked in the world, how it would work for his kingdom. What was the purpose of all this? And I remember sitting um, in a class, in a Sunday school class, it was the year after my first year of Bible college, and I heard somebody talking about Ephesians 2 and the idea of God's election and his giving us faith in Christ. And all these things I had not heard with that nuance quite the same. Then my youth pastor gave me a cassette tape of James Boyce. Now, some of you will think this funny, um, I used to listen to a lot of John MacArthur when I was in college, which is fine. So as far as his doctrine of salvation is right on, I was starting to learn it. But my youth pastor didn't want me to become a Baptist dispensationalist, so he gave me James Boyce to offset that. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. You're not any worse off for it. But I started listening to James Boyce cassettes, and I got to one in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember it like it was yesterday. I actually don't know that it was Ephesians 2 he's preaching directly, but it was a section he started talking about Ephesians 2 on. And he talked about the nature of our deadness and sin, we're dead, we cannot choose God, that it has to be him regenerating us before we could have faith. Like, wait a minute, I thought I believed and was saved. No, he was saying, based on the teaching in Ephesians and elsewhere, that no, a person who's dead cannot, so they have, for them to believe, they have to be given new life so they can trust in Christ. In fact, trust or faith is really an evidence you've been born again, that term born again. So I go to John 3, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall be saved. That's how you hear it, right? But don't forget the full context. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. How can I be right with God, essentially? Well, you must be born again. How do I enter my mother's womb a second time? Can the person do it? No, you can't. You must be born again. So for you to believe in the Lord Jesus, you have to be born again. Who knows which way the wind blows? And I started realizing this is all the work of God. And the fact that I didn't really actually that day when I heard the message at that moment decide, God, I will now come to you. God had come to me and breathed new life in me. When I heard the gospel, yes, that's the gospel. I believe that. Now, it's not wrong for me to bid you all to trust in Christ. I just know that you will only trust in Christ if he borns you again. You must be regenerated to have faith. You say, that's, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. It takes the whole burden off my back. I never did anything to save myself, and I can't do anything to keep myself saved, so I'm relieved from that. Because if I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it a hundred times already, just like you, by the way. But I can't because of what he's done. And as long as I am recogni- recognizing this truth, I'm built up in it. Now, I may struggle 
That doesn't mean I'm not saved any longer. We have means of grace that build up the gospel in our life, the word preached, the sacraments, prayer. That builds up the faith you have that he's given you. He gives you the faith, and he gives you means to make it better and stronger. But it's all a gift of his. So now, what a difference. I mean, I'm not worried about salvation all the time. I know my sins are covered in Christ. And by the way, that actually motivates me not to sin as much. I could guilt you till tomorrow to not sin. You'll do good for a day or two and then be worse in three days. But if I can convince you of the gospel, which I can't, if the Holy Spirit convinces you of the gospel, but if I preach that message and Spirit uses it, you will be set free from that kind of performance-driven idea of your rightness before God or that God loves you more because you did your devotions. The beauty is he loves you as much as he possibly could. It couldn't be better than union with Christ. That will help you do your devotions. You'll want to go meet with God. That's how it happens. That's how it works. That's completely life-altering. And it changes you as a person. It also makes you realize and feel much more compassion for the fallen world. When I watch looting and rioting and racism and people upset with, it just grieves me because that's who all of us are outside of Christ. Whatever action, look at some bad action that someone's committing and they're all over the place and that's us apart from Christ. And it's awful to be living. It's misery is the way the Bible describes it. It's misery in, oh, that the world would know Christ so that they would no longer be in this misery. And Christ's body is the church. We have this message. And this message is the answer. That's not trite. It's not just conversionism. That has to do with a a whole-scale transformation of individuals in a new community called the church that has an impact on the world that is yet to be seen in its fullness because it's a kingdom that's invisible in many cases. It won't always manifest itself outwardly, but it's working inwardly. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is grace. That's everything. The burden is gone. Boyce said, Without the power of God, not one individual would ever become a Christian. The salvation of the soul is a resurrection, the recovery of a person from the dead. Without God's power, not one individual would ever triumph over sin, live a godly life, or come at last to the reward that God has for all of his own in heaven. He's exactly right. Our situation from Christ, uh, uh, apart from Christ could not be worse, but our situation in union with Christ could not be better. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel at what is ours in union with Christ. 